Hi again. I'm David Wilson, the editor and the publisher of the United Church Observer. And you're listening to another episode of the Observer podcast. It's produced by members of the magazine's editorial department. And in each episode, we bring you some of the best stories and interviews from the magazine, as well as insights from our contributors. For the next little while, we'll hear from American theologian and activist Jim Wallace, along with environmentalist and broadcaster David Suzuki. But first, I'd like to share one of my recent observations with you. About a year ago, I got into a discussion with a group of friends about our parents, and the cohort famously christened The Greatest Generation by journalist Tom Brokaw. The gist of the conversation was that our generation has had a ridiculously easy ride of it. Where our parents struggled to overcome economic depression and war, we've only known prosperity and peace. We've never been tested, one of my friends observed. His words rang so true. When I look back on my 60-plus years, it's like my generation, or at least the part of it that grew up white, male, and middle class after the Second World War, has lived in a bubble. We've been immune from history. Seemingly, our only challenge has been the pursuit of ever greater pleasures. But I, for one, inherited enough of my parents' worry genes to harbor the uneasy feeling that we might face a reckoning someday. I've always wondered what it would look like if history came calling and whether we'd have the grit to respond to it when it did. The bomb that went off with the election of Donald Trump was also the sound of a bubble bursting. I and my contemporaries shared the shock and alarm that millions of others felt, but it was also tinged with a sense of loss. Our free ride was over. We were being tested, finally. The new U.S. president and the people around him bear a marked resemblance, in tone and substance, the totalitarian regimes our parents fought in their own generation. The first few weeks of Trump's presidency confirmed beyond doubt that the gravity of the Oval Office would not restrain the new president, but rather inflame him. There is a nightmarish torrent of rash, mean-spirited executive orders, spiteful tweets, scandals, incoherent, belligerent press conferences, and deeply worrisome national security moves. Since then, deepening scandals and the sting of legislative failure do not appear to have softened Trump or those around him one little bit. Now that history has caught up with us, we privileged boomers must find common cause with marginalized groups who've been tested all their lives and for whom Trump represents a dangerous escalation. The end goal must be to stop him and his cronies before they can inflict irreparable damage on liberal democracy. At a minimum, this means using the courts, political pressure, and diplomatic sway to isolate and contain the president until his term ends. But the best outcome is outright defeat. This likely means marshalling enough legal, political, and moral suasion to convince Republican members of Congress that their own interests are better served with Trump out of the picture. This is a fight for everyone, not just Americans. Joining the battle can be as simple as sending a check to the American Civil Liberties Union or subscribing to the media voices that are calling Trump to account. And it goes without saying that we must resist Trump copycats here in Canada. The upsurge of protests since Trump's inauguration is encouraging, but it's just a start. In the coming months, the movement needs to refine an ethically framed message that speaks to a full spectrum of decent-minded people, including those on the soft edges of Trump nation. The movement must also sharpen its objectives. 
For example, insist that Congress force Trump to disclose his tax returns. And it must develop leaders around which it can coalesce. The struggle needs as many recruits as it can muster, but the onus is especially on people of my vintage. We have lived well off the fruits of liberal democracy. Now that it's imperiled, we, in particular, must rise in its defense. When I got kicked out of the church as a teenager over issues of race and war, there's always a few people who uh, who kept my my hope alive that there could, could be faith, <laughs> even though uh, I didn't see much going on. So Verigan was one of those people that showed me you could be a Christian and be against the war. And I was, uh, I didn't know any Christians who were, so... <laughs> Yeah, it was great. It was a very, it kept my hope alive in faith. You're listening to Jim Wallace, the founder and the editor of Sojourners magazine, and a well-known advocate for peace and social justice. He recently spoke with Observer contributor Marty Tyndall from his home in Washington, D.C. They discussed the role of faith in the 2016 U.S. presidential election, whether religion can inform the political resistance to U.S. President Donald Trump, and ultimately, to find hope amidst the turmoil of the Trump presidency. Elections are often decided uh, by margins. Uh, and this one, in the end, it was 70,000 votes in three states uh, that put him over the top electorally. So these things, these things are beyond our control, elections. And a combination of flawed candidates and flawed messages and alienated voters and to me the huge factor of race in this election um this is how it turned out so the question now for people of faith is what do we do and uh, i don't think this was a sort of normal election where um you know there are mixed results and christians end up voting in different ways depending on their their perspective. I do believe Donald Trump, uh, I'll stand by what I said back then, he is he is antithetical to all of our, to, to the values of what Christians say they believe, he's antithetical. Put it in classical context, every, every Christian order, every renewal movement, every, uh, every time um, uh, revival springs up, Catholic orders to to uh, evangelical revivals. Uh, it, it, even the spiritual disciplines are normally in response to three things: uh, money, sex, and power. <laughs> so we and so Donald Trump is a worshiper of money, sex, and power. So in terms of traditional Christian values, he's the antithesis antithesis of those values. And he actually ran on racial bigotry. And so what is often implicit in American politics, he made explicit. What is often covert, he made overt. So there were a lot of, in fact, this was, the, the election revealed an incredible racial divide in this nation because people need to 
Canadians need to need to really realize what happened here. A majority of white people on every level, not just white working class, but every level, every uh, and 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 without a significant gender gap, a majority of white voters voted for Donald Trump, and people of color overwhelmingly voted against him. Now, sometimes you hope there'd be some leaven or salt or light from the Christians, but white Christians voted exactly like their white tribe. In fact, in some cases, worse, uh, more for Trump. So white Christians, uh, a majority of them, white Catholic, white mainline Protestant, and white evangelical, most of all, voted for Donald Trump. When Christians of color voted against Donald Trump, and Christians of color are saying to their white brothers and sisters, clearly racial bigotry wasn't a deal breaker for you, wasn't a disqualifier, because many of them are saying, well, we didn't, we didn't vote for him because he said those things. We don't agree with those things. But it wasn't a deal breaker. So I think we have more distrust in the faith community than I've seen in my lifetime. This is a moment in which it calls for the deepening, deepening of our faith, number one, and the deepening of our relationships. And if that were to happen, if, if our faith deepened and our relationships got even stronger, um, who knows what kind of spiritual and even, you know, political uh, influence might come from this time, on, ironically. Uh, so the frame that I'm going to be using from this point is, is faith, resistance, and healing, those three, faith, resistance and healing. This isn't going to be a time of reform, of changing things for, for the better. Uh, I, I think there's going to be a, a new and deeper movement of faith and justice in this country because of this danger that we're, that we're feeling. So usually it's when we go to your place when, when we go back to our scriptures and actually, actually read what, what our scriptures say and decide to actually do what is said. Two, when we build relationships, um, uh, undocumented pe people fill our churches. Uh, they're pastors in the churches. Um, and they, we form relationships with the people who have, who have come. And, um, uh, you know, churches uh, are, are, are going to have to um, say, literally we're going to say to the president, uh, you can't deport um, hardworking, law-abiding, contributing uh, immigrants. Um, Jesus calls them the stranger, and you and we're, we're going to welcome them. And if you're trying to deport them, we're going to welcome them into our churches, into our seminaries, into our homes. And literally, we're saying to to their their police and to the Donald Trump, if you arrest those 
immigrants, you're going to have to arrest them in our churches and in our homes, uh, not home alone at night. So the domestic cost of your trying to arrest all those people will be you're having to um, go come into our churches and arrest the stranger. Uh, when it comes to policing and young African-American men who are in grave jeopardy around the country, uh, there won't be any accountability from Washington. No one looking after or looking over the uh, what's happening. We're going to say, we're going to go to every sheriff in the country and say, uh, we're the clergy in your community. Uh, here, you know, here's who we are. Here's our cards. Or shake their hands and say, we want to work with you on community policing, which is good for all of us and good for your police, too. Uh, but any racialized policing, uh, we're going to watch and we're going to uh, hold you accountable for that. We're going to we're going to film you, we're going to record you, we're going to watch you, we're going to be in the streets with the kids. And you'll be held accountable by the clergy in this town for obeying the law in regard to all your citizens. Um, no racial policing. And we're here to see it doesn't happen. And if they register Muslims, uh, I'll tell you that Christians and rabbis will be the first in line. So the Muslims will have a hard time getting in line because we'll be in line ahead of them, uh, like the Danish king did when he put the Star of David on himself, when uh, the Nazis told the Jews to put on Stars of David. So that's what we're going to do. is always the most important thing that faith communities um, have to contribute uh, to movements for social justice. Um, we've got constituencies and infrastructure and all of that. But finally, it's the hope in the end. I learned that in South Africa um, with, with Desmond Tutu and others during the difficult days, during the under apartheid, I'm hiding out and living in black townships and, and being interrogated by the security police and watching the churches there, uh, you know, actually believe <laughs> that when kids in Soweto, teenage kids, when I'd ask them, um, will your children ever breathe free air in South Africa, 14, 15 year old kids would look me, look me in the eye and say, I will see to it. I will see to it. I knew apartheid was 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 done when I heard those kind of commitments, and when um, Desmond Tutu, you know, um, uh, he believed he believed that they would one day win, and he bet his life on that. Bet his life on that, and I saw it happen again and again. So faith to me, I love the Hebrews text. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So, um, uh, or my paraphrase of that is, hope means believing in spite of the evidence, and then watching the evidence change. That's what we do. And so the evidence doesn't look good right now for this country, and people are afraid all over the world. Uh, let, me, let me say, with good reason, with good reason, Donald Trump is a very dangerous man. 
uh, and the world is in danger because of him. Um, and yet, in spite of that, um, we are the ones who have to believe that the Donald Trumps of the world and his values do not have the last word. That was our conversation with Jim Wallace. Wallace is also the author of 12 books. His most recent is America's Original Sin, Racism, White Privilege, and the Bridge to a New America. It was published by Brazos Press in January 2016. David Suzuki is a geneticist and broadcaster best known for hosting CBC television's The Nature of Things. He's also the co-founder of the David Suzuki Foundation and a professor emeritus at the University of British Columbia. In 2015, Suzuki wrote the book Letters to My Grandchildren, which was published by Greystone Books with the support of the David Suzuki Foundation. Here, he reads an excerpt from it, recorded in Sound Kitchen Studios, in Suzuki's hometown of Vancouver. My dearest ones, I hope I don't get too preachy here when I talk to you about what drives us to do what we do and what values should motivate us. Well, I guess it's inevitable that I will sound kind of preachy, but you can ignore most of it or pick and choose what you think is useful in your lives. What sets people on their life course? It's a question I've often asked myself as I watch you grow older. Tamo, as the eldest of my grandchildren, your incredible athleticism in hockey, football, and snowboarding seemed to be leading you to some kind of career in sports. I was so surprised and so proud when you morphed into a snowboard activist, trying to entice young boarders to notice the world around them, how they were affected by it, and how they could make it better. Because of your Chilean roots, you could snowboard in Canada during the winter and then continue snowboarding in Chile during our summer. But as a result, you were exposed to issues of poverty in South America and to environmental concerns like the plight of sea turtles. And you've gone on since to become an environmental activist. I wonder where that will lead you to in the coming years. But go for it. Journalists often ask me what led me to become an environmentalist. I never thought of environmentalism as a career. And when young people ask me how they can save the world, I tell them not to worry about the world. The planet will do what it does with or without us. I tell them, follow your heart. Do what you love, whether it's art, music, writing, or fixing cars or carpentry. You see, environmentalism is not a specialty or a discipline like medicine or teaching or law. It's a way of seeing the world and recognizing that we are part of the biosphere, that we are dependent on nature for our health and well-being, on clean air, water, 
soil photosynthesis and biodiversity. We need everyone to see the world through that lens. For my position now as an elder and your grandpa, I can say that I've learned a lot from my mistakes, failures, my successes. Here's the most important piece of advice I can offer. Please, don't shape your life around making money, acquiring power, or becoming famous. These ends may be the consequence of working towards something that's important to you but they should not be your goal. What do you believe in? What do you enjoy? That should guide you in life. If by chance you do achieve money, power, or fame, they won't bring real joy, pride, or satisfaction. And too often, people who aspire to those goals will sacrifice friends, even family, trying to achieve them. But when they become rich, famous and powerful, what do they stand for? What are their values? These are the important questions. David Suzuki has written more than 50 books, including many for children. His latest, which he co-authored with Ian Hannington, is called Just Cool It! Climate Crisis and What We Can Do. It was released by Greystone Books in April. You've been listening to the Observer Podcast, which can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, and at ucobserver.org, where you can find links to everything we talked about in this episode. Also, you can follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at uc underscore observer. This podcast was recorded by David Wallen and produced by our digital content editor, Kevin Spurgaitis. Music was provided by Poddington Bear through the Free Music Archive and Grammy-winning composer Moby through Moby Gratis. And it's hosted by me, David Wilson. The Observer's print and online editions are put together every month by me, managing editor Jocelyn Bell, senior editor Kaylee Moore, assistant editor Elena Gritson, senior writer Mike Milne, and art director Ross Wolford. We'd like to acknowledge the financial support of the Government of Canada through the Canada Periodical Fund of the Department of Canadian Heritage. Now that's it. We'll be back with another Observer podcast in the coming months. See you next time. <laughs>